and we praise you for your power. We thank you for the glory of your word. We ask that you would grant us the grace of your spirit so that we might understand your word. And as always, Lord, I ask you as the your pastor of this church that you would grant me the grace I need to preach your word in a manner which is pleasing to you and beneficial to your blood-purchased people. In the name of Jesus and for his glory, amen. Well, it is 2012. The world is not going to end. Well, I can't prophesy that. It might end, but I don't think it's going to. But as we approach spring and summer, we do come upon a, a notorious anniversary of sorts. Do you remember what happened in 1987? Religiously. The great televangelist scandals. You might remember them. Your non-Christian friends will still bring them up to you, even though they're 25 years ago, and even though they were Assembly of God preachers, and we are not Assembly of Godians here, they will still bring it up to you. Well, remember Jim Baker? Well, yes I do. It was a quarter of a century ago, and I never sent the man a dime. Thank you very much. Those two men, Mr. Baker and Mr. Swigert, brought horrible disgrace to the name of Christ. One more so than the other. Those men were proud. They were very proud. I can hear them in the early days of my Christian walk bragging about the things that God was doing through their ministry. You might recall some of the charges that were made public against Mr. Baker and his family. An air-conditioned doghouse. Okay? An air-conditioned doghouse used by money that people sent to their ministry. Well, God certainly brought them low, didn't he? One of them seems to have repented. Mr. Baker seems to have repented. I can't read either man's heart, but when a man goes to prison and then writes a book, I was wrong, and then comes out of prison and begins to preach a very different message, I can take that on fairly face value. God has a funny way of humbling those who want to push themselves to the front of the line. Pride is really, when it comes right down to it, the essence of all of our sins. When you burn it right down to the ground, that's where it all starts. When we think of the first temptation that the evil one gave to our first parents, the essence of it was pride. You shall be like God. Surprise, 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 they already were. They were created in God's image. They bore God's image. They were not animals, and you're not animals. But the temptation was to be like God, to have a secret knowledge that only God had. And that at its base is pride. We will see in a few weeks the first account we have of Jesus being tempted 
by the evil one, one-on-one. It's going to be coming up in Matthew 4. And when we really analyze those temptations, he's appealing to Jesus' pride. As a man, Jesus would have been susceptible, as a man, to a proudful decision. And Satan himself, in those temptations, is showing his own pride. He shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you, and this is a paraphrase, if you will bow down before me, I will give these to you because they have been given into my hands. Really? A bunch of lies. One, those kingdoms, we have no place in Scripture where it's ever told us that Satan was given all the kingdoms of the world. Some people use that and say, you see, Satan is the Lord of this world. And I say, no, 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 no. I said, start from Genesis 1, go to Revelation 22 and show me any place where it ever says that God said, all the kingdoms of the world are yours. It's a lie. It's a lie. Satan had no authority to offer them because they weren't his. Satan is a proud being. As Lucifer, he was enamored with his own beauty and his own glory, but it wasn't enough. He said, I will ascend to the highest mount. Now, I want you to think about this. Even when you and I sin in the smallest little way, what we're really saying is, I'd like to sit on that throne just for a minute, God. Thank you very much. Could you just move off? Just just for a minute. Now, admittedly, that's a big temptation. I think that being God would be a great job description. I mentioned that to an unbeliever this week. I said, that sounds like a fantastic job description. To be eternal and to be able to do whatever you want, anytime you want, that sounds like a perfect job to me. But guess what? You and I don't have that authority. We're not God. And then the person said, well, I realize that. And I'm like, well, now you're on the, we're on the right track to realize that we don't have that authority. But when we sin, we're saying that we know better than God. Is that not hubris? Is that not pride? Is that not arrogance to think that God doesn't know what's best for us? Listen, God has created you in his image. And if you're a Christian, you've been recreated in the image of Christ. You've been included in the covenant people of God. He has sacrificed his own son for your sins. He loves you. He knows what is best for you, even if what might be best for us might be bitter medicine from time to time. Surgery, generally speaking, isn't fun. I don't know many people who tell me I'm really looking forward to my dental appointment this week. Most people say, I've got to go to the dentist this week. Well, don't, don't, don't relish it. And we sure like it when we say, no cavities. That's, that's music to our ears. That means no drill. You're not going to stick a drill in my mouth and hurt me. We don't like it, but it's necessary. If the doctor says, I have to pull this tooth or it will grow infected, we realize, okay, I have a decision to make. 
pain, or further disease. And the wise person, of course, says, I have to go to temporal pain. And maybe you know someone who has put something off because they were just afraid of the physical pain and the malady grew worse. And that's, that's terrible because outside of miracles, diseases don't go away by themselves. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, the book of Proverbs tells us. And those men in 1987 were brought exceedingly low. Think of the tragedy of Mr. Baker. He had an empire built on sand, built on a false gospel. That's why God brought him low. Because his gospel is false. And the money that came in, he and his family used it to further their own lives. Did they do some good? Sure, of course. Absolutely. But obviously, God brought them down. Brought him so low, you might recall, that when he got sentenced, he was found underneath the desk in, in his lawyers in the, in the court office, hiding underneath the desk, crying, saying he was seeing all kinds of things. And I was at Bible college at the time, and my Bible professor said, he's not crazy, he just has a good old-fashioned case of shame. And that Bible professor said, you know what, shame is a very underrated emotion in our society. And that really stuck with me. I thought, he must be very ashamed to be publicly humiliated like that after being so high in the evangelical world to be brought that low to have his sordid sins for the whole world to see. How is the pride in your life? That's what this text is talking about here. He's sounding like a fiery Old Testament prophet, isn't he? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Right? Now, we have a couple of issues to work out here. Jesus, well, James tells us earlier that if we pray for something with double-mindedness, that we should not expect to receive anything. That we have to pray with such single-mindedness that we believe that God can and will do a certain thing. That's very different than what's going on here. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples. If you have faith like a mustard seed, you will say to that mountain, be cast into the sea and it will be done for you. Uh, I have yet to find anybody who has that type of faith. We might have faith, but it's obviously lacking in that regard. And that's not really talking about literally moving a mountain. That would be kind of silly to move a mountain into a sea. There would be really no purpose to it. What that's talking about is what we say, moving mountains. Really getting things out of the way and changing ourselves, our families, our church, and the world. But that's not what's going on here. You see, faith and prayer rely on God's power These people in this section, God's conspicuously absent from their boasting. 
They're saying, we will do this. We will do that. And that is scary. Now, it's important for us when we begin a venture to to use modern jargon and have a positive attitude. To believe that we will succeed. There's really no sense in beginning something if you really truly believe you're going to fail. It's rather a waste of time and energy. But it calls for great humility to realize that if God has given us the ability to do A, B, or C, that it's God who's given us the ability. Just as in those readings from the book of Exodus, he gave those men the ability of craftsmanship. Remember, we looked a few weeks ago. God gave them, he put his spirit upon them to do those special construction projects of the tabernacle. Anything that you can do, any talent that you have, any gift you have, is just that. It's a gift from God. And don't we all know persons who have been gifted in one area or another and never used that talent? That's, that's horribly tragic, isn't it? When we look at someone that we love and we say, you know, that person could have could have done this or that and they, they didn't meet their potential. That, that's a tragic thing to say. And to the young people, I'd like to tell you, childhood is a wondrous time. But it really is preparation for adulthood. Because you spend more time on this planet if you live a full life as an adult than you do as a child. And I often tell young people, ages 12 to 25, absolutely the most important years of your life. Because that's when you make a lot of very important decisions. And if you make one or two bad, very bad decisions in those years, you can play catch up for a long, long time. So, the book of Haggai tells us to consider our ways. And what James is telling us to consider here is the pride and arrogancy that we all can fall prey to. He tells these people and us, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Do any of us know what will happen tomorrow? Can any of you stand here and say, I guarantee you I will even be here tomorrow? None of us can. We hope, but we can't guarantee it. I can't tell you what will happen in the next half hour. I can tell you what most likely will occur, but I can't with any prophetic 100% guarantee. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. Why? For what is your life? Rhetorical question. It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. This is where our real biblical humility has to begin, to realize that we are created of dust, to realize that we each have feet of clay, to realize that our lives really are, from God's perspective, a vapor. God is eternal. Try and wrap your mind around that a little bit. Most of us are way too busy to even stop and ponder that. We're dealing with a God who has never not existed. Double negative. 
to get your attention. He has never not existed. He's always been existence. Always will. He doesn't have a starting point. He didn't create himself. It's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our apprehension. That's who we are dealing with. Compared to him, we are vapors. We appear and we go. And isn't it a truism that I think it was Mark Twain who said something to the effect that youth is wasted on the young. You know, as we grow older, we tell young people, it's going to go by quick. It's going to start rolling by really, really fast. When you're eight or nine, it seems like the days just drag by. But you start hitting 25, 30, 35, 40, and you start to ask, it'd be real nice if there were 26 hours in a day. It'd be nice. But you know what? There isn't. There's only 24. There's only 24. Some of us will live to be 90 or 100. Some of us won't. Most of us, nah. I forget what the averages are. 75, 72, 73, something around there. So some of you have long exceeded the average and some of us are creeping closely up to that average. But the years go by very quickly. We're vapors. But that's not cause for a a, a morose, bleak outlook. That's just dealing with objective reality. And when you find someone who is in tune with objective reality, it's a breath of fresh air. When we find someone who is completely removed from objective reality, that's a great tragedy. They're in a world of delusion. When I was a social worker, a counselor, I dealt with so many young men who had come from so many just horrific backgrounds that it was amazing that they were even alive. But some of them were just, they were just flat out deluded. I think I might have told you, I told this one young man in my office, I said, listen, you have talents, but... You're not, and this was in the early 90s. I said, you're not the next Michael Jordan. You're not. I've seen you play basketball. You're good. You'll beat me. You're not going to even play Division I basketball, much less beat him. He said, well, how do you know that? I said, well, because in 1987, ironically, I saw him play live, and trust you me, you're not him. He's amazing. He could do anything on a basketball court. There's nothing he couldn't do. I said, you're good. There's no doubt about it. You might even be able to play community college, maybe Division II or something. But for one thing, you're 5'11". I said, there's a couple of short guys out there, but they're few and far between. If you're 6'5 out there, you're considered pretty short. I said, you didn't even make the starting team in high school. And he said, well, Michael Jordan got cut from his freshman team. I'm like, you are correct. But eventually he improved. I said, I'm begging you, concentrate on your schooling. He was a smart kid. I said, you need to concentrate on your schooling. You're a smart kid. You made a couple of mistakes. You don't have a a gigantic criminal record. It can be fixed. I don't know if he took my advice or not. He graduated from the program and then I moved to Tennessee. 
he was wasn't he was living in a world where he wasn't in touch with the realities of his life and he was refusing to work hard at his schooling and he easily easily particularly with his economic background if he had worked hard he easily could have gotten a scholarship to a, to a decent college easily he could easily have been 3.2 3.3 3.5 student if he had just if he had applied himself but he refused to so he was always clocking in at the 1.9 to 2.1 level which is just not going to get you a scholarship anywhere and he really was quick he's quick on his feet taught himself to type 90 words a minute i said if you can do that and you have you've got you've got some brain cells working for you but you have to push yourself wasn't really able to do it. I hope he hope he did. I don't know what happened to him. How does it go with you? Are you dealing objectively with who you are? James goes on and then says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. See, this is very different. This is very different. This is saying that the Lord is ultimately in control of the outcome of our endeavors. And listen, one of, the, one of the hard facts of life is you can do everything right. Everything. And you have no guarantee of success in a worldly endeavor. You don't. Because it's ultimately in the hands of the Lord. And He moves in mysterious ways. And what what does Jesus say? And we should take comfort in his words when he says, many who are first will be last and many who are last shall be first. In other words, there's going to come a day when everything is revealed and things are turned topsy-turvy. And then people who the world viewed as winners will be viewed as tragedies. And people who the world viewed as losers will be viewed as sons and daughters of the living God. We can do all of the right things, go through all of the right steps, yield our work and labor to the Lord, and God still doesn't say, yes, indeed, you're going to have success. Do we have a better shot? Absolutely, but he does not ever guarantee any of us perfect wealth, perfect health. He doesn't. What he does guarantee us is his presence and the joy of the Lord. He doesn't guarantee us happiness because that happens and then disappears. He does guarantee us his presence and his joy. And there's nothing more comforting to see, nothing more inspiring really than to see a Christian who has done all that they can do and has hit a rough patch but is still facing life with the joy of the Lord. That is incredibly inspiring. And there are people in this congregation who have been through things that they've faced it with the joy of the Lord. And I have to tell you, that's very encouraging as a pastor to see people in pain or suffering in one level or another and still saying, I still believe. I still believe. That's hard to believe when life is crushing pretty easy to believe when things are going well, isn't it? That's fine. Things are going well. The Lord's blessing me. He's blessing me. 
what sometimes appears as a blessing might not be a blessing. And what sometimes looks like a crush is actually a blessing. I recently had to tell a friend of mine, who, a ministerial colleague in another state who's under brutal pressure at the moment. I said, I know this is going to sound, it's easy coming for me because I'm not in your shoes. And this guy's getting shot at from all four corners. I said, diamonds are created under a great amount of pressure. And I said, I'm not being glib. You know that. We're good friends. I said, but you're obviously under all of this pressure for a reason. God must have something planned in the future for you. And he said, you don't think it's because of sin? I said, of course it's because of sin. We're all sinners. But from what I can tell, this is just, you're just, you're just getting swatted around. I'm sure you've missed some steps, but God has put you under this pressure. He must have something big for you. So let's listen. If you are under great stress right now, for one reason or another, not only is God in control of that, but he can and will use that to create a diamond of you if you will walk with him. You see, the people in this passage want to do it on their own. And he's telling them, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills. In other words, rely on the Lord. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Commit your work to the Lord and he will walk with you. But then he goes on and says, but now you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Arrogance is a little different than pride. Arrogance is when you arrogate qualities to yourself that you do not possess. Pride, in the biblical sense, is taking overly personal satisfaction in a gift of God. Arrogance is when you say, I have this and you don't have it. Like that young man who really thought he was going to be an NBA superstar. No. You're going to be great at the YMCA. You're fantastic on the playground. You will not be on television. Arrogance. It's different than pride. Now, scriptures tell us that God hates that. The book of Proverbs tells us that pride and arrogancy I hate. Listen to me very carefully. If you haven't paid any attention to anything in the sermon, please listen now. If God says, I hate A, I hate B, and I hate C, we do well to listen. Because if he hates A, B, and C, and we do A, B, and C, we will be placing ourselves in a position we do not want to be. And then he goes on and concludes, Therefore, to him who knows to do what is good and does not, to him it is sin. Remember, he's talking to the covenant people of God here. He's addressing them throughout this letter as beloved brethren, Adelphoi, the beloved brethren. They should know better. Ignorance is no excuse of the law. If you get stopped by a police officer and you're going 95 and you say, well, police, officer, I didn't know that it was a 40. Oh, well, tough darts. Okay. But if you do know what is correct and you willingly violate the law, then the offense is aggravated then. You see? The covenant people of God, and you're the covenant people of God, 
Some of you, you know the will of God. You've heard, you have your Bibles in your house. You've heard preaching for 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years. You've been handed down Bible stories from your parents and your grandparents and some of you from your great-grandparents. You have great Christian heritage and it says if we know what to do and we don't do the good, then to us it is sin. To him who as much is given shall much be required. If we raise ourselves up, God will bring us down. It's just the way he does it. If we elevate him, he will bring us up. I knew a chap that I went to seminary with who was proud of his intellectual abilities. He was very bright. And he banked all of his future on his Ph.D., and actually, he's one of the reasons why I didn't get a Ph.D. Because I looked around at my junior class, my first year of seminary, and I said, you know what? If there's a professorship open, then that guy and that guy and that guy and that guy, they're better suited. Because in, there's very few evangelical positions open in, let's say, New Testament or theology. It's limited field. A lot of competition for the posts. I said, you know what, though? I'd be a better pastor than they are. But they're definitely gifted for academics. So I just said, you know what? And it took a lot of pressure off me. I'll get my MDiv, and I'll keep studying on my own. But really took the weight off when I said, oh, I'm not going to get a PhD. Decided it wasn't God's will for my life. Sought counsel, and I'd made peace with the decision. This fellow got his PhD from a very prestigious university. And for one reason or another, he can't find a job. Can't use it. I don't know exactly why. I'd hire him in a heartbeat. It's just one of these guys just just walks in. He's just brilliant. Just 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 there. I have a sneaking suspicion that God's put him in the desert for a little while to make him realize. No, you took those gifts for granted. You were a little arrogant with your fellow students little bit too cocky in class, a little too quick with the answer, a little too quick with the smirk when someone would say something that maybe was a little bit wrong. Pride goes before destruction. So I call upon you to just take a peek at your life and ask yourselves, where am I too proud? Where am I too arrogant? And where can I be humble? Because humility is a beautiful grace of the Spirit. And remember, I keep telling you, humility is not being a doormat. Humility is having your power under control. Under God's control. So go forth and do that, and he will raise you up. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that this grace of humility would be granted to all of us and that we would stand upon you and base all of our hopes and dreams upon you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.